Yeah. 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 What just happened? Uh, well, today we're done with uh, we're done with the redemption series, and today we're going to begin uh, our series in Exodus. And because we believe that every word is breathed out by God. Exodus. 
chapter 5, verse 2 and 3. It says, But Pharaoh, I'm sorry, read verse 1. After Moses there went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, and they may hold, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I shall obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go.
wants to remind us that God is the one who speaks, and God is the one who acts, even if it's through man, demonstrating that He is in control of all of creation and all of history, then, now, and future. Now, we all remember the Exodus, just a little bit of education for you here. Exodus is part of a, a larger story, so to speak. And it's the second book of the first Bible in the Old Testament. And the first five books in the Old Testament have several names, and one is the Pentateuch. And again, this is kind of talking about Jewish culture a little bit, because not too many Christians run around talking about the Pentateuch. Okay. Now, the Pentateuch includes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those first five books. If you look over, you'll see the first five books of. What is called the law. In the New Testament, those five books are referred to as the law of Moses, the book of Moses. Moses' law. Moses, I mean, it always has many references. It's often referring not just to the Ten Commandments, but the entire law or Pentateuch that is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The whole story. So we're looking at kind of chapter two out of a really much larger story, but I think it's the first five chapters of a, a, a larger story. And knowledge of the Pentateuch gives us knowledge and understanding of the New Testament, of the Gospel of Jesus, and really the whole Bible. If you don't have an understanding of the Pentateuch, you're a little confused. The Pentateuch comes from two words, the Greek word penta, which means Pentagon 5, five and Tukas, I believe it is, I don't think it's but Tukas, right, I don't it wrong, but it was basically a, um, a case for carrying around scrolls. And so you have this five-volume work. Now, the first book of Pentateuch is obviously called Genesis. And it could quite possibly be the most important book ever written for the scripture. I know many people might argue with me, but it basically sets the stage for this play that we know as reality, as life. Okay. And it has a beginning and a setting. And this is kind of what Genesis is. We have a conflict. This is my English teacher coming out of me. We have a conflict. We've got your heroes. We've got your climax. And we have a resolution that is yet to come when Jesus comes back. Okay? It is a huge story. And the hero which is always going to be Jesus beginning back even in Genesis. And I don't want to disconnect these things from one another. It's all part of the same scripture and the same story that we're all part of. And, but if you ignore Genesis and just go into Exodus, that would be like beginning a book in chapter 9 and hoping to expect, you know, to understand what's going on. And so we have to have somewhat of an understanding of Genesis because, as the song said, Genesis really is about the God who is there. About the God that exists. And without the book of Genesis, the rest of the Bible, I really believe, would be largely incomprehensible. Much of the meaning would be a little confusing at least. Genesis gives us answers, it gives us a history, it gives us a beginning, it gives us an understanding of, of pain. Because if we don't Genesis, we have the pain and brokenness without any kind of reason as to why it's there. Without Genesis, we have no hope. And if we're understanding who we are and why we're here and where we're going, it's important to understand where we started. And so Genesis, meaning origins, 
origins of everything, so there's the creation, including pretty much anything that's not God. There's only two things in this world. Creation and creator. That's it. Even Satan is a creation. No matter what it is. And so we're talking about the origins of government, origins of men, origins of women, origins of marriage. All these origins come to understand how families work and how they're supposed to work and how God created people to interact with one another and how he created a one and desire for cities to interact. It all comes from the book of Genesis. You have to understand that. So my goal today as best as I can is to give you an understanding of Genesis um, really quickly. So we're going to fly through it. And I know I call it 50 verses or 50 chapters in 50 minutes, but it's probably going to be 34 chapters because there's no way we'll do it all. We will get through 34 chapters. So get your fingers ready. We're going into Genesis. Here we go. Genesis chapter 1. Okay? We're starting at the beginning of the book. I know some of you have heard this before. I'm sure you have. You're going to hear it again because it's stinking important. Here we go. Genesis chapter 1 says, In the beginning of what? Everything. A beginning of everything. Nothing exists at this point, okay? Except God. Who created God? No one, okay? In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light, and God said, The light was good. And God separated light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was an evening and a morning, a first day. I love the first verse of Genesis because in the beginning, God. It presupposes, it implies that God exists. Okay? That's super important. Atheists don't get too far past Genesis 1 1. God exists. We can never forget that because a God. There is a God, there is one God, and he exists. And God begins to Create this creation that is beautiful and wonderful and amazing. And the first two chapters of Genesis explain where everything comes from. What came first, chicken and the egg? He created animals. He created beautiful animals, trees, everything you see. And eventually, he creates man. And he continued to say, everything is good. Oh, it's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. And he gets to the creation of man and like, that's really good, but there's something not good. It was the fact that he was alone. He needed to create a woman. So, yeah, he had. So he knocked. He knocked. And out of hell a little bit, creates a woman from his ribs, delivers her like a father of the bride to Adam, and Adam sings a song about it. Okay, he's like, holy smoke, okay, wonderful, you know, bring this beautiful woman to him. And together they create this marriage. And Genesis chapter 1 says this about it, verse 26 to 28. Then God said, this is the creation man, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. The image of God created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said, Be fruitful and multiply, it doesn't mean what you think it means, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So he creates man differently than he created animals. And he imbues man with 
rest is because God says, let it be so. We are completely dependent upon God. And that is really what the first chapter of Genesis is. There is a creator and there is creation and we are different and we are distinct and we are dependent and he is independent. And that sets the stage for what happens next. Genesis chapter 3. So you have the creation, this beautiful creation. Genesis chapter 3 verse 6 and 7 says this. God told Adam and Eve not to eat flesh. He told Adam and Eve to eat his wife. He did do a, pretty, a very good job of it because she repeated the command inaccurately. Don't eat the fruit of the tree. It's one tree. You have everything else. Everything is perfect. We always like imagine that thing. Things were perfect, you know, you know this. It was perfect at this time, and man felt the temptation. And man took it and ate, it says this, verse 6 and 7, chapter 3. After the same told them that you would basically be like God. You could be created. You can define what's right and wrong. You can determine what you want. Genesis 3 says this, So the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eye, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit, and she also gave some of her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed big leaves together and made themselves loin cloths. So then God shows up after this all happens. And instead of a fellowship that they enjoyed, instead of a wonderful relationship that they have with God, now they're hiding. And God shows up and says, Adam, where are you? Like he doesn't know. Adam, where are you? Uh, back behind this tree over here, or this bush over here, so naked and no one can see me. Adam, I created you, okay? He gets up and says, Why are you hiding? He says, I'm scared. I was scared, and he also says, before, because of the thing that's on, that he was ashamed. Before the fall, there was no fear, and there was no shame. But that has come in because of their choice to rebel, their desire to be like God, and their disobedience. And now, their lives are full of guilt, and shame, and fear, which characterizes pretty much our lives today. He created this perfect thing, this wonderful thing, this beautiful thing that will function beautifully according to how God said it should function. And man took a left turn and the curse of sin came in. And what happens is that amazing conversation to say, what have you done? It's a huge blame game. Adam goes, well, the woman that you gave me blamed God on the woman. The woman, number two. So he goes, what would you do, woman? Well, the serpent, blame, 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 blame. And so God curses it all. He says, because sin came in, Romans 5 says, death came in and death came to all of us. It was death of everything. It was spiritual death and it was physical death. And the world broke. And the relationship with God was broken. And the relationship with man in terms of who am I was broken. Man, it's so 
things are not going to be easy for you. And then he removed them from the garden and says, you're out. You're going to work hard. You're going to have to do it in some ways on your own. You could have had a wonderful life here in the garden. And in the midst of that, he does give hope. He does give some hope and indicates that Satan will be crushed by the seed of the Lord who points to Jesus. So there is hope in the midst of all that, but there's terrible pain and suffering and brokenness that occurred because of the fall. And instead of wanting to go the way God did, man goes his own way. And Genesis proceeds from that point on, after I'm the garden, to show what the consequences of sin are. And so as you go through, it's pretty easy. We're going to run fast. Genesis chapter 40, you have Cain and Abel, first two kids of Adam and Eve. Okay? They bring offerings to the Lord. God shows regard for Cain. I'm sorry, for Abel's offering. Cain ticked. And the first mention of sin, God says, what's your problem, Cain? He's an enemy. Like, don't you know that if you did it right, you'd be accepted? Careful sin is crouching at your door. He looks at his brother Abel and he gets kicked. And he goes out to the field and he kills his brother. So we go from eating apples to murder. That's the first thing. Man quickly falls. Genesis chapter 5 says this. I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 6, I'm sorry. Sinfulness continues and gets worse until he gets Genesis chapter 6 and says, Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. What's that mean? It means every intention of his heart was evil, always. We've gone from living a life in creation, gone into this place of curse, where everything is cursed, and the consequences of that are evident. The world has completely evil, and God says, that's it, I'm going to wipe them out. And so he takes Noah. He doesn't take Noah because Noah was really right to be good. He takes Noah by grace, he chooses Noah, says, I'm going to save you and your family. Go build a boat. Although you don't even know what rain is, go build it, because it's going to rain. I've never seen rain. I know, but build it. So he does. And he is saved as God kills Everyone. Everyone. And we go, wow, maybe God's really serious about sin. But he still has this salvation message going through there. So everyone's wiped out, and after the flood, we're going to skip to some chapters. We get to Genesis chapter 11. Noah gets out of the boat. He repeats the mandate. He says, Be fruitful, multiply again. Now you can start eating meat. Okay? That's in there you read it. Okay? Be fruitful, multiply. So he does. And his three sons and their wives, again, start to govern the earth and, and take care of and build culture. And as they build culture, they leave. We get to Genesis chapter 11, and the culture that they're building, there's a little bit of a problem. In Genesis chapter 11, it says this. You have the Tower of Babel, and they say, oh, those are the languages of the people, they were broken up. That's correct, it was. But something else was happening. It says in verse 4, the men are talking to themselves. Uh, verse 3 we'll start with. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and they had bitumen for mortar. 
Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city, a tower with its tops in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord saw that and said, This is not good. Because what was happening is the culture went from wonderful creation, curse comes in, and consequences of that are, are myriad. But sin, 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 wipe them out. Okay, let's start over, so to speak. And sin immediately happens with Noah's own sons. And eventually the culture continues to build. And so they say, let's build a man-glorifying city. God said, this is not good. Because my intention is for my people to create a God-glorifying culture. So, they confound their languages. They can't understand each other. They go off the earth. Then we get to Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, we have a man named Abraham. And God proves in this moment that he is a God of covenant. And by a God of covenant, I mean as a covenant God, he is first and foremost relational. He doesn't leave man by themselves, he pursues them. Even though he is completely other, even though he is completely holy, even though he is completely righteous and different from the sinful man, he reaches out and he initiates relationship with men. Man will not by themselves and his proven reach out to God because they cannot reach out to God until God reaches out to us. In the midst of this sinful and idolatrous culture, God goes down and he calls one man, Abraham. Abraham. And he consistently did this. He consistently, from Genesis all the way through until today, chooses men by grace. He chose Adam, obviously, but he chose Noah. And of all the men he could have picked, Job was known and said, I will make a promise with you. And then Noah got three sons, but he only chose Shem. And he said, I will make a covenant with you. And eventually he gets to Abraham and he said, That all these people, I'm going to make a covenant with you. We have a God who, by grace, is continually initiating relationship according to his purpose and his will and his plan. And so he comes to Abraham and he says this. Watch this in. First of all, in the book of Exodus, after 400 years of silence, that's how Exodus starts. 400 years of silence, God shows up. And in Exodus uh, chapter 3, he shows up to Moses and he said this, describing himself. He says, I am God of your dad, my father, who is the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And so, in order to understand who this God is, that's showing up and saying, Who are you? We have to understand that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are. Otherwise, we get confused. It doesn't make sense. We're just taking both of out of the mix of the whole story. So here we go. Genesis chapter 12. He calls Abraham and he says this one of the most important verses of the scripture. He says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, verse 1 of chapter 12, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. 
I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. So even if God greatly chooses someone, his purposes are to bless everyone. But he still completes his plan by choosing a guy to escape Abraham. He makes Abraham a promise. He says, Up and leave and follow me, and I will bless you. And that promise right there, that covenant, so to speak, with Abraham, is kind of the linchpin of the entire Bible. So much so that Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 4, describing our own faith. He goes back to Abraham. And so, Abraham ups and leaves. Now, Abraham is really sticking hold at this point. And his wife has had no kids, so she's really sticking hold. So she had two really sticking old people. Him saying, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to give you kids, and you're going to have a huge family. He's like looking at her, and looking at himself, going, how's that going to work? And Sarah is even a little more doubtful than him. They have faith, but they're a little bit doubtful there. So Sarah, in order to help God out a little bit, says, you know, why don't you take my servant because I'm popped out of the kids real soon, doesn't look like. And to help God fulfill his promise, you can have sex with her and produce a kid. And then we'll help God fulfill what he said he would fulfill. So she does, and she gives her Hagar. Kid Hagar. And they have a kid. And the kid's name is Ishmael. Okay? Maybe you're good with Ishmael. Ishmael basically becomes what we would know as the founder of the whole Muslim world. You want to talk about Muslims? They go back to Ishmael. As their beginning, as the Jews go back to Isaac, will come soon afterwards. And so Ishmael is born, and he becomes the ancestor of the Arab world. But God says, That wasn't my plan. In order for Abraham to get through this little bit of stubbornness, he shows up again in Genesis 17, verse 16. He showed up a couple times, so in Genesis 17, he says this, verse 16. I will bless her, talking about Sarah. I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations, kings, and people shall come from her. The Abraham fell his faith and laughed. They're old. Said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? That's old. You can imagine all the problems. we got all kinds of medical advances to try to fix that kind of stuff today. Shall Sarah, who is nine years old, bear a child? Come on. She's old. And ninety back then is still saying, nine old. Okay? Oh, that Ishmael. What about Ishmael? I got this kid. Let Ishmael be the God you bless. That Ishmael might live before you. God said, No! But Sarah's wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him, and I will have a covenant for his offspring after him. And as for you, Ishmael, I have heard you, behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful, and multiply greatly, and God has. God has. And you shall father all princes, and I will make him into a great nation, which he has. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac. I will establish my covenant with you, Abraham. And then with your offspring. Okay, here's my offspring. God with that. 
trusted God and what he did, he became the God man. God does not trust him. He is not trust him. So we call him the God man. And he becomes the God of Isaac through a very strange experience, but very meaningful one. If you look at Genesis 22, it will come past. Genesis 22. The one kid Isaac is born, his son, his true son, Ishmael eventually is kicked out. A little bit of conflict. Somebody says, I want you to take the one son that I promised you. The one son that you didn't think was going to happen. This one son, and I want you to go up on the mountain and I want you to sacrifice it. That son's probably 38 years old. So get a bunch of wood, son. Put on your back. Let's go. They were take his one son. And he goes up to this, this is the most beautiful, horrific, wonderful, terrible story. And he puts his son, builds an altar. He puts his son, his one son, the one guy he has that God promised to bless. He's like, you promised God, you promised God. I don't know how it's going to work, you promised God. And he lifts the knife to kill his own son that 30 years old. He has tied the kid up. I don't think he's fought it. Because he trusted him. And he lays on the altar. He's like, what kind of freaking sadistic God is this? And he's about to stab his son. And God says, oh, hey, don't do it. You believe. You believe. And he goes, look over there. The lamb comes out and sacrifice the lamb for you. And in that moment, I believe, because of what I just saw, the faith of God. Jacob are about as different kids you can get. Like my son, Fisher and, and Lambert are totally different. 
And so he does. And eventually Isaac, as the story goes, he is old enough to where it's ready for him to kind of pass on the right of the household to his son Esau. He doesn't really know what all sorts of things going on. And so he's going to um, basically bless his firstborn. And so mom, Rebecca, who loves her little Jacob boy, says, Look at this guy, so she takes out some you know, like big food sandwich suit, puts it on her son, and says, Once you go, you know, your dad can't see that well anymore, he won't really know. And so he Jacob comes to him and says, Bless me. He goes, Ugh, you don't sound like Esau. Let me do your hands. Very good. And so he does. And the moment he blesses him, he comes in, he talks about this, like, what have you done? He's like, I bless your son Jacob. I will your brother Jacob. He's like, holy cow, I'll tell you, bless you, bless me. He's like, no, it's only one buddy. And I bless Jacob. And he's also Jacob. He's also Jacob. So much so that he says in 27 41, that Esau hated Jacob. His brother hated him. Son of all, I can't read more. Because of the blessing of his father and blessed him. Esau said to himself, the days of mourning and my father are approaching. Then I'll kill my brother.
But he wants to marry and he says, okay, because Laban, just like Bob, who was accepted, who was just like Jacob, Laban says, look, you can work and you can marry Rachel. You're going to work seven years. Okay, I'll work seven years for you. So he works for seven years for this girl. And then the wedding day comes, they get married, woo, all the bail off. What the snark is this? This is Leah. It's very important.
And on the way to meet Esau, he has a he has one of the most amazing experiences. Genesis 32, I said 36, but it's 32. In verse 26, this happens. He's pretty scared of Esau. And then that night, they went and divided the family, and they went one way and he went the other. And we'll start in verse 23. And Jacob was left alone, 24, sorry. And a man wrestled with him until the break of the day. So this man showed up. The man is, well, let's see. Now the man thought he'd have prevailed against Jacob. Jacob was a fine wrestler, I guess. He touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joy as he wrestled with him. And then he said, Let me go, if the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? He said, Jacob. He said, Your name shall belong to me, Jacob, of Israel. For you have striven with God. And with them. And with them. They argued that Jesus was wrestling with them. And somewhere it was the outcome and expression of God. He was wrestling with them. And he goes from being Jacob to Israel, the father of twelve people. The father of twelve will be tribes of Jacob of Israel. And all this family history leads us to the story which we'll have to pick up next week of the eleventh son, who is Joseph. And Joseph's story is Final act in setting the stage for Exodus, which sets the stage for Jesus. And if Genesis, by introducing God, sets the stage for what we have to know for Exodus, Exodus explains who this God is. It sets it up for us to receive Jesus. So if you look at the last verses of Exodus, Exodus 40. Exodus 40. I know this is a lot of education and teaching, but it's important. Next to this morning, it says this. Verse 34. One of the last verses of the story that we're going to be going to. Basically, at the very end, once God's people redeem, they eventually build what is known as the tabernacle. It is the precursor to what will be to come. But all is pointing to one thing. When this tabernacle is built, God is leading Israel through Exodus, and the pillar of fire, and this cloud, and he's always been present on top of the mountain. He shows up, but now he's going to be present and localized in a particular place, and that is the tabernacle. And in verse 34 it says this, The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And the word there, John uses, has the same one described in 114, that Jesus came, the word of God came in the flesh and dwelt among men or tabernacled with men because all of this is a picture of what is going to happen when Christ comes to earth to the incarnation. And the glory of God is most seen in Christ. Because the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob is Jesus. And God, just as God created us, He created us with an intent to be beautiful and wonderful and harmonious and this awesome thing. 
The Bible says in Ephesians 2 that we are saved by grace and we were created in Jesus. John says, by Jesus. Peter says, by Jesus. For good works. We're talking about the same creator. And then, Jesus, we're encouraged against sin, and Jesus, according to Galatians 3, Jesus becomes a curse for us. So just as God created, Jesus created, just as God cursed us, Jesus becomes that curse. He becomes the salvation way, so to speak. And Jesus comes down and says, this is a covenant with Abraham, and a covenant with Isaac, and a covenant with Jacob, and a covenant with you and And Luke, and a couple other gospels too, in Luke 22, as he's taking the communion cup, he says, likewise the cup, I think he's saying, this cup poured out for you, and it's a covenant and so when we talk about Exodus, understanding who this God is, and answering the question of, who is this God? Jesus is the picture of that God that everyone from everything points to. And we have to remember, and I've said this before, that just as Jesus is God-like, God is and there's nothing, as you look at Exodus, we have to remember that all these things that are happening are not just an expression of a God that Jesus served, although that is true. It's an expression of who Jesus is. And it's not just some story, some myth, some tale, or someone else's story. It's thinking our story. Because we go back, and you can have a history in your life. There's a God of Adam, and a God of and a God of Noah, and a God of Shem, and a God of Abraham, and Isaac, boom, 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 to a God of Sam, and a God of Tim, and a God of John, and a God. There is the same God that we are all following. And Jesus is the way that all points to He is throughout the entire scripture. And so, in order to understand, My prayer is that we understand Genesis. Understand how the last verse we'll go to is Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Say the stage for our study of this. Says this. Because what you have in the Old Testament is, I'll be honest with you, a bunch of broken people following God, failing to follow God. Romans 4 says this, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherence of the law, for to be the heirs. Faith is not the promise of glory. For the law brings wrath, there is no law, and there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only the heirs of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of the 
As it is written, I made you father of many nations, the same covenant, which is for the same covenant, for the same covenant, it's the same covenant for me. The story of Exodus is our story. And we follow the same thing. That's just amazing. For 4,000 years ago, we were all following the same thing that in the end And Exodus is the story of not Israel, but our family being taken toward and to Jesus Christ. As we today think of the United States, as you understand that your story is much larger than just your 25, 30, 40 years ago. It's a story that's rooted in history. It's a story that's rooted in real people. My son is really asking, how does the Bible feel? So you're getting that back to